Hi, everybody. Hope you're having a good weekend. If you're new to the show, my name is Darren Brown, and this is a podcast, The California Dream, where we talk about California and the United States and political things going on. I've been away for a few weeks. I took a little break for a few different reasons. We're coming into the middle to the end of the semester, so there's a lot of things coming up with school for me. Um, I also took kind of a little mental health break just to kind of step away from things for a little while. I was starting to feel a bit uh, overwhelmed with things. And if you're feeling overwhelmed and kind of helpless, then you're not really able to focus on anything and you're not really going to be able to contribute anything at all. And also, I just didn't think that I had much important to say for a while. Um, I know these are called the, the weekly roundups, but the weekly part was more of an aspiration than anything else. And I'm not going to just uh, fill space, fill time with content if I don't think it's worth someone listening to. Um, I'll just skip for the week if I don't think I have anything important to say. So those are some reasons why I was gone for a while. I do have some things I want to talk about this week. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned that there were some uh, resources to do with economics that I wanted to share with everybody. And so I'll go over those here. So the first video I wanted to share was um, on John Stewart's podcast. So John Stewart, who was, of course, the former host of uh, The Daily Show before Trevor Noah, um, he now has a podcast, uh, which is called The Problem with John Stewart. A little play on words there. And he had on Stephanie Kelton. So this came about because he had a central banker on a few months ago, a couple months ago. And he basically was asking the central banker some questions about the nature of money. Because uh, like a lot of people, he was kind of confused about it. What is money? What is going on the past several years? We hear about quantitative easing. Uh, we hear about you know, all these stimulus programs and all these different types of economic policies are a lot more in the news and media than they were um, before. So he had some very good questions to ask. You know, he asked like, you know, where does this money come from? You know, when they'd say uh, the Fed is doing this uh, quantitative easing or we spent all this money on COVID uh, that Congress passed, uh, what's going on here? What, why, how are we able to do this? And um, what's really going on behind the, the scenes. And uh, I watched that episode or listened to it, and he had some answers. But he, like most economists do, and most academics do, he kind of talked around the issue and didn't really give straightforward answers. Uh, I'm not going to say that he gave uh, misleading answers, but he didn't really fully answer them. He kind of dodged some questions. And so that um, didn't quite sit well with John Stewart. And in fact, 
this particular episode made its way into um, the hands of Stephanie Kelton. Uh, I believe she said on the show that she actually listens to the podcast, so she probably just listened to it as part of her regular podcast listening. And she actually reached out uh, with Rohan Gray, who is, um, I believe he's the leader of the Modern Money Network. And the two of them together reached out to Jon Stewart and said, hey, we saw this episode that you had a couple uh, episodes ago. And we noticed that you asked some really good questions and you didn't quite get the answers that you wanted or you weren't satisfied with the answers. Well, we have answers that we'd like to share and we think we have some comments that we'd like to make about the questions that you asked. Would you have us on to the podcast? And so... Uh, the two of them appeared on the podcast, and they kind of followed up on some of the issues that were raised on that first episode. And the reason I want to recommend this video, it's about 45, 50 minutes long, is uh, Stephanie Kelton really does a good job of explaining these ideas in a way that ordinary people can understand who are not versed in economics, who haven't read a lot of this stuff or they're, they're not kind of immersed in it. She has a very good way of explaining it in terms that uh, anyone can understand. The episode has um, almost got a million views, and this is just on YouTube, so that's not even counting the podcast. So probably a few million to several million people have listened to it already. And um, it's a very good introduction to this topic. I've talked about MMT or modern monetary theory before, and how it's really important for understanding um, what's going on in the economy today and uh, how it relates to California independence and why independence, I think, is something to consider, considering the framework that MMT offers to understand things. So I will include a link to this in the description below. Um, but that's one uh, video that I wanted to share with everyone. So the other video is an interview that got much less views. Um, it is an interview that took place on the Scottonomics podcast. So this is a podcast to do with Scottish independence. They also have a YouTube channel. It's uh, called Independence Live. And I'll post a, a link to this as well. And they interviewed Fidel Kaboob. Um, this is somebody that I would really, really like to get on the show um, if I'm able to reach out to him. And I really want to interview him and ask him some questions on the podcast. He is an economics professor, and he was interviewed by the hosts of the Scottonomics podcast, including uh, Karen Van Sweden, who is someone I would also like to interview on the show. And um, he gives a really good introduction. Um, it's, an, it's an introduction to modern monetary theory, but very particularly to how it would apply to a country that is considering or thinking about um, becoming independent from another country. And he's addressing, of course, Scotland. So Scotland, a, a country of 4 million people attempting to break away from the United Kingdom with about uh, 15 times as many people, whereas California is 40 million people breaking away from a country that's about eight times the size. 
So the applicability of this conversation to California is um, mostly uh, it carries over. There obviously would be many differences, but the general outline of what he says definitely applies because he talks about some very general aspects of what a country or potential country should consider um, from the financial standpoint, from the monetary standpoint, from the fiscal standpoint, about um, what they need to think about if they are considering breaking away and becoming independent. And what he really focuses in on is economic sovereignty, or what MMT calls monetary sovereignty. And he talks about the different types of sovereignty and why it's so important for a country that's becoming independent to adopt its own currency, to not keep the currency of the country that you're leaving. So in the case of Scotland, it would be very important that they not keep the British pound. And I would argue that it would be very important that they not adopt the euro as well. I'm very much against Scotland um, becoming a part of the eurozone. I think that would be a big mistake. And concerning California, of course, it would mean recommending that California not keep the U.S. dollar, that California have its own currency, similar to how Australia has its own currency and Canada has its own currency. They don't have the British pound anymore. They have their own sovereign currencies. And the reason for this, as he gets into in the video and explains so well, is he goes over what are the essential aspects that you need to to be independent and self-reliant as a country. There's a number of different aspects. There's food sovereignty. So you need to have domestic sources of food so you're not reliant on foreign countries. You're not reliant on importing food um, too much. You need energy sovereignty. You need medical sovereignty. So you have all the medical equipment. You need some degree of military sovereignty so that you're not, you know, privatizing all of your defense. And the argument that he makes is that if you are able to to have these basic set of needs met, then it doesn't matter the size of the economy or the size of the country. Um, You should be able to run your own affairs and not worry about being um, bullied or being manipulated, or being reliant or dependent on external economic production outside of your country. And his conclusion is that Scotland is able to do this, and they have everything that they need to do. So he's actually an advisor to the Scottish independence movement, and uh, he, he regularly advises with them. And this episode is actually the first episode of this economics podcast And um, it's a really good introduction um, to kind of complement the first interview that I mentioned. And also, when you're listening to it, if you go to listen to it, think how this would apply to California and think that the reasons that he gives for why he believes Scotland should have its own currency and see how much you think that translates over to California and the United States. I think it translates very well. I think a lot of the things that he says, could apply to California um, in much the same way, even though there are some definite differences involved. And the, the, the scale of the transition would be much more involved than it would be with Scotland. 
but the points are still relevant. And I think it's a good uh, interview for a lot of people to listen to and think about. Okay, the main thing I wanted to talk about today, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. So I'm going to start by talking about something that doesn't seem related to politics at all. But then I'm going to bring it back around. So just stay with me for a minute. So I want you to think about everyone in life has times when you have to make big decisions. So these could be decisions about education. What school am I going to go to? What do I want to major in? Do I even want to go to college? What, what do I want to do with my life? Careers. What job do I want to take? Am I going to accept this particular job? Um, what career do I want to go into? Not just a particular job, but what kind of general direction do I want to go to in, uh, in my career? There's financial decisions, um, money decisions. What am I going to invest money in? That's a big decision. Are we going to buy a house? That's a big decision. Are we going to move? Are we going to refinance? Uh, you know, all these kinds of things. These are big decisions to make. It's decisions in relationships. Am I going to, do I want to date this person? Do I want to break up with this person? Uh, are we going to get married? Are we going to have kids? So those kind of decisions, that, that's what I'm talking about. Not like, are we going to go to Carl's Jr. or Taco Bell for lunch? Not, not that kind of decision. The real decisions. So oftentimes we make these decisions because we have to make them. There's, there's deadlines. Like you, you have to decide by this date what college you're going to. You have to decide by this date whether you're going to accept this job. You have to decide by this date whether you're going to purchase this house. So there are deadlines and there's no option not to make a decision. You have to make a decision. And once you've made a decision, something that happens just the way people are, it's very natural to do this, is that you want to justify your decision in your own mind. You don't want to think that you made the wrong decision. So you will kind of invent narratives or stories that you tell yourself to justify the decision you made after the fact. And this doesn't mean that you don't take everything into account beforehand. It doesn't mean that you don't logically think through it. But even if you logically think through it, and even if you've weighed all your options in a somewhat objective way, this still usually happens. That even if you made a decision the right way, you still are going to, after the fact, kind of make up you know, some kind of uh, reasons that really justify that, yes, I did the right thing, and I can, I can live with this, and th this was a good thing to do. And a lot of times, these justifications or stories we tell ourselves after the fact are not really being honest with ourselves. Because ultimately, they're self-serving. Because we want to feel good about ourselves, we don't want to think that we made a bad decision. So, for instance, you could make a decision about what you want to study in college. You weigh your different options, what you want to do. And then you kind of invent all these reasons after the fact about why, you know, you chose the right major. You went to the right school, um, whether they happen to be true reasons or not. You make a decision about whether to take a certain job or to go on a certain career path. 
And then you make up a lot of reasons afterwards to make yourself feel good about that decision, even if those particular reasons might not be completely true. So I want to go through some examples where this applies to other areas besides just personal decisions. We were just talking a minute ago about economics. This is something I see in economics all the time. In the economics profession, there are some standard viewpoints, and people have devoted their entire careers to defending these economic theories and these economic uh, subjects that they study. And that's why when someone like Stephanie Kelton or Fidel Kaboob comes along, the, the two people that I want you to watch the interviews, that's why they meet so much resistance. That's why they get um, made fun of in the press. That's why they're, they're slandered. That's why they're ridiculed and mocked. That's why they're not taken seriously. That's why they're attacked. Is They are really questioning the mainstream narrative and story that the economics profession has told itself about how economies run for decades or hundreds of years. And when somebody is confronted with evidence that they've made the wrong decision, it can be very difficult to accept that and to admit that you made a mistake. So we see this in economics profession, not just with MMT, but with some other heterodox schools. Um, the, the, the other major one that you see this with, of course, is Marxism. You see Marxism attacked from all different directions um, based on somewhat spurious grounds and um, lack of understanding, not really coming to terms with it for what it really says. And so this is, this is really prevalent in the subject of economics. Uh, no matter how much evidence comes out that these economic theories, these economic models that these people have developed no matter how much evidence accumulates that they just don't match with reality, that they just don't conform with the real world, they're just not going to give them up. Because economics is like a religion. It's faith-based. They believe in these models. They believe in what they're saying. And their belief has to trump reality. It has to come first. So that's another area where this kind of uh, thinking comes in this justification about the decision that you've made. In this case, it's an entire field of study that has made a decision to double down and triple down on their wrong models, to, to double down and triple down on their incorrect economic thinking, despite all the evidence and despite all the arguments against it. And this is what happens a lot of the times. If you think about it in life, or whether it's in an academic subject like economics, you're confronted with evidence that you really didn't make a good decision and you feel backed into a corner. And when you get backed into a corner, you have a fight or flight response. And so there's two possible reactions that you can have to this kind of overwhelming evidence. The first is you can accept the reality admit you made a mistake, and work to correct it. This takes a lot of courage to do, and um, it's, it's not fun. It's kind of painful. The other response is just to double down and triple down, and sometimes quadruple down 
and just dig your heels in and just further back yourself into the corner in an almost absurd fashion. So those are the two directions that you can go. This happens in politics a lot. So two examples that I think are really relevant recently. Um, the last episode, we were talking about Ukraine. We were talking about Vladimir Putin. So Vladimir Putin has a particular worldview about politics, about Russia, about the idea of a Russian empire. He, of course, is a former KGB agent, so he was steeped in this kind of narrative, this story uh, that he's been told and, and told himself for probably his entire life. And he's using this narrative, this story about Russia, some great empire, you know, that has to make itself great again and um, bring back, you know, old glory days. He's using this story as a justification for the decisions that he's made. He's not being honest with himself. Um, I'm not sure how much capacity he has for self-reflection in the first place, but if he does have self-reflection, he's not being honest with himself. And so he's lying to himself, and then he's convinced a significant part of the Russian population to buy into this narrative as well. This is why he thought that he could go into Ukraine and that he would be welcomed. You know, there would be no resistance. They would just be very grateful. I mean, it's the same thing that happened in Iraq. And these people really thought that when you go into to Baghdad that you'd be greeted as liberators and everything is going to go great. Because they had told themselves a story and narrative about the Middle East and about Iraq, um, that they were lying to themselves about that. So... So Vladimir Putin has done very much the same thing. And he finds himself backed into a corner now because reality is catching up with him. He was expecting to go in and take Kiev and, um, you know, get rid of Zelensky in two or three days. It's been well over a month now, and they're actually backtracking on Kiev. So Kiev is not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, it's just been a disaster for them. So militarily, diplomatically, politically, economically. It's uh, a complete disaster. And so what Putin is doing is he's doubling down and tripling down. He cannot accept, because of his own fragile ego, he can't accept that he made a mistake. He can't accept that the narrative and story that he's told himself, just like the narratives and stories that we tell ourselves in our own lives, that Academics tell themselves sometimes in the fields they study, he can't accept that his understanding is not right, and he's told himself a story to justify things that he's done. Now, in the case of Putin, this is something everyone needs to be concerned with because his being backed into a corner and his own fragile ego having to deal with what's going on has repercussions for the entire world because they're a nuclear power and... Quite literally, this could escalate to a world war or some kind of nuclear conflict. So that's a very serious example of what I'm talking about. But that is another example from politics, um, what's going on in Russia and what's going on with Putin. You also see the same thing with uh, people who are remaining um, fanatically devoted to 
either Donald Trump or Trumpism or some of the stories that have taken hold in that particular uh, political universe. So there was a narrative and story that developed to explain away why the election was lost. Couldn't possibly be that people just don't like Donald Trump. Couldn't possibly be that Joe Biden got more votes. It couldn't possibly be that his campaign made mistakes and so on. Um, it had to be this massive fraud, this massive conspiracy. And this has taken hold in the mainstream Republican Party. It's basically what's animating the direction that they're going in this kind of grievance culture and conspiracy theories. They are doubling down and tripling down. And this is really going a scary direction. This is something I want people to think about. There is way more evidence today, right now, April 2nd, way more evidence today about what went on both before the election, after the election, during January 6th, after January 6th. We have a much more complete picture of just how high this went, how many people were involved, how specific the steps that they took were. I mean, at this point, if you're denying that there was an attempt to overturn an election and overthrow the government, you're really being delusional. You're really not living in reality. And yet, despite all the evidence that's coming out day after day, week after week, month after month, there are tens of millions of people, tens of millions of Americans who cannot let go of this. They cannot bring themselves to, to say, I made a bad decision to listen to Donald Trump. I made a bad decision to follow these conspiracy theories. I made a bad decision to put my faith in these people, these leaders, and I need to let go of that. I need to admit that I was conned, that I was lied to. That's a, hard, that's a really, really hard thing to do, to admit that somebody lied to you and that you believed it for so long, especially something like this. So they're doubling down and tripling down, and these conspiracy theories just get ever more elaborate and absurd and almost beyond parody. And this is the direction that one of the major two parties in America is going. They're backed into a corner, and you're seeing a kind of fight-or-flight response. And this is a very dangerous moment because of that. It's something I think that everyone in California needs to think about, is what is this movement going to do? What are these people going to do? Are they going to go further down the rabbit hole? Are they going to go further down this direction? The farther and farther they go, the more worked up they get, the more dangerous it gets. I mean, we're in a way worse place today than we were on January 6th. I mean, don't, don't get fooled. Biden is in office. We have the committee. Everything on the surface looks fine. But things are way worse now than they were a year ago. They're way worse now than they were two years ago. It is not getting better. We're not going in the right direction. And we're headed for even worse outcomes in the midterm elections this year and in the presidential election in two years. So there are two examples of this phenomenon on the right wing. And I want to offer another political example 
what I think is similar. And when I say this, I don't mean in any way to make an equivalency here based on motivations or intent. But I think the process may be the same. And that is, in California, many people have made a decision after everything that's happened that we can still fix this. We can still make this work. So they've made a decision that we can work within the American system. We can right this ship. We can get everything back on the right track and head the right direction. Despite all the evidence of the past year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, how long has this been going on? How long have Californians been trying to push the country in a more progressive direction? How long have we been trying to fix these problems at the federal level? I mean, are we any better off now than we were 10 years ago? Or let's just say seven or eight years ago. Let's say before Bernie started his first campaign. If you had said to somebody seven or eight years ago, hey, this little senator from Vermont that not many people have heard of, and that is probably the, the furthest left senator in the entire Senate, is going to galvanize tens of millions of people, have incredibly successful campaign, raise hundreds of millions of dollars, be a major presidential contender, change the direction of the conversation. If you told somebody that seven or eight years ago, you would think things are going to be better, right? You think that's great. That's never happened before. So if that's what's going to happen, things are going to start to improve. Maybe he didn't become president. You know, maybe his ultimate campaign didn't succeed. Um, and maybe we didn't get everything we want. But if that's what happened, I mean, it must be at least not as bad as it is now. But it's not true. We're in a worse place than we were in 2015. I mean, do we really have anything to show? We don't have Medicare for all. We don't have free college. We don't have cancellation of student debt. We don't have a job guarantee. We don't have regulations on businesses. We haven't had much increase in taxes on the wealthy. Unions are still at their lowest point. Our military spending is still just as high as it always was. Our foreign policy hasn't changed much. Nothing has changed. Nothing in Bernie's platform that he, he brought in 2016 or in 2020. None of it has come to pass. Maybe very little, maybe little pieces. Okay, you can email me and say there's like little pieces here and there. But in the whole, nothing. After all this time, all the hundreds of hours and probably hundreds of dollars that a lot of people have put in on these campaigns and trying to affect what goes on in Washington, what do we have to show for it? So why, despite all the evidence of the past several years, despite everything we see, that the right is going even further to the right. We're heading even more towards the direction of authoritarianism, more towards the direction of open fascism. Why do most Californians still think 
there's a possibility of saving this American experiment. I mean, how bad does it have to get? And I think the reason has to do with what we've been talking about in all these different cases, whether it's personal life or an academic subject like economics or these politicians like Vladimir Putin and uh, Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. It's the same dynamic at play. We're telling ourselves a narrative and a story to justify not wanting to deal with what's going on. What is this story? Well, it's the story that we've been told our entire lives from really, if you're born in this country from the time that you're born until, until the present day, how many times have you recited the Pledge of Allegiance? How many times have you listened to the national anthem? How many times have you celebrated 4th of July? How many times have you set off fireworks? How many times do you see all the flags everywhere? How many times do you read about how exceptional America is in textbooks? How many times you told how great America is on TV and in the media and on the internet? We are constantly being told that America is this experiment that's just getting better and better as time goes by. Yes, there are, there are times when we have a little bit of a setback, right? Not everything is a straight line. But the overall arc, it's going in a positive direction. That's a story that we're told our entire lives, that America has an ideal, that it, it really had a lot of problems at the beginning, obviously slavery being a major one. But as we keep going, we keep making progress, right? America is this experiment that's very messy and, you know, not always pretty and we've had a lot of mistakes, and things weren't great in the past, but gradually and gradually, as time goes on, we're getting a little bit better and better and better, and that's just going to continue on for the future. That's the narrative. That's the story that a lot of people tell themselves. So it can be very difficult to let go of that story. It can be very difficult to admit, maybe, that the reason that you're still hanging on to hope for America is out of nostalgia and out of feelings and emotion and propaganda and all these intangible things, rather than telling yourself that the reason that you're holding on to America is because it can work out, because it is something that can be fixed. That's not the real reason. That's the reason that you're telling yourself. Just like Vladimir Putin tells himself about the Russian empire, tells himself the stories from when he was in the KGB. That's why he cannot accept what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. That's why the MAGA people can't accept what's going on because they've told themselves this story about America and how it should be run and who should run it. And they can't accept what's going on. It's the same dynamic. You can't accept what's happening because you're holding on to a story that you've told yourself to make yourself feel good about the decision. In this case, the decision not to really consider what's going on in the country and what we need to do here in California. So that was a kind of roundabout way of saying what I wanted to say this week. 
because I noticed these parallels. I was thinking about what's happening in Ukraine, thinking about what's been happening with the January 6th committee and, uh, and Donald Trump and MAGA and all this stuff. And I just started to notice some parallels. And then I thought, well, does this really apply maybe even to California? The difference, of course, is with Vladimir Putin and Russia and MAGA, the reasons that they're not willing to accept what's going on is because they believe the worst in people and they have very bad motivations, right? They don't want to give up their privilege. They don't want to give up their power. They don't want to have a more inclusive society. I think a reason a lot of Californians are not willing to admit it is actually just the opposite, that they do believe in the good in people and they believe that and they believe that people generally can be persuaded to change their minds, that people are rational, that we can reason with people. We can change the direction of things in a better direction if we just try hard enough because people are good. So it's a good reason why people are telling themselves this story. It's not out of bad motivations or bad intentions like it is with Vladimir Putin or with Donald Trump, but it's still the same dynamic playing out. All right. That is all for me this week. I will talk to you again later. And um, after this kind of mental health break that I've taken, I am going to start working on reaching out to people uh, to interview, especially the two people I mentioned, the economists and the podcast host and some other people. I hope you enjoy those interviews when I am able to get them. Talk to you later.